So I'd like this evening to uh, continue to unfold this exploration and this understanding of uh, what uh, we're actually doing or what's actually happening as we practice, as we do these practices. With a kind of uh, reminder or title or headline, uh, you know, what we're doing is we're exploring practices that nourish well-being and uh, support us to let go of unnecessary layers of dukkha. Nourish well-being, support us to let go of unnecessary dukkha, unnecessary uh, ill-being. I think I've translated it before. And, you know, we can say other, other ways of translating or understanding dukkha and what is dissatisfactory. Yeah. That sense of um, unease that we sometimes get and all the way to stress and distress, the whole uh, spectrum. And sometimes I like to uh, think of dukkha or articulate dukkha as the sense of being in friction with our experience and with life, that there's a sense of friction. There's a, one image uh, that's used sometimes of like rope burn. <laughs> you know, when you, you're trying, you're holding onto a rope and it's being pulled out of your hands. That's that sense of friction. And when we're trying to hold on to things uh, or we're trying to push them away uh, from us in our, you know, whole, you know, good-hearted attempt at this, at this game of avoiding the unnecessary suffering and increasing the available well-being. So this kind of dukkha, this ill-being, unease, dissatisfaction, sense of friction and argument. In one of the early suttas, the the Buddha speaks of dukkha as having arguments and disputes. Mm. And it can be interesting if we want to understand something and if we want to um, reduce it in our life. It can be interesting to contemplate, and this is very much the invitation of the teachings, to contemplate uh, what... Uh, what does dukkha depend on? Or what does it arise with? What conditions it? Mm. Because, you know, whatever we know in our experience is conditioned. This is one of the questions that the Buddha asked on his journey to awakening. On what does dukkha depend and what does it depend? Or what does it arise with? And one thing that we can clearly see that it arises with is that sense of pushing and pulling on experience. I want more of that, yeah. and I don't want this. Yeah. Which 
is kind of so much of what's going on for us when we look and we can see it more and more clearly as our minds settle. So the sense of push-pull, the sense of demand and the contraction that arises with all of that. So when we are busy (laughs) doing this, you know, yes, there's not that, yeah, I want more of that for me. Now that arises with a sense of contraction, of limitation, of tension, and of friction. So it may be that, you know, today, for example, we've been meditating here in the hall, and there's been an experience like maybe there was tiredness or restlessness in the mind. And there can be a very natural (laughs) response of aversion. I don't want this. (laughs) Pushing it away. I need to get rid of this. And only when there's none of this, then will I get that which I want, which is those, you know, peaceful states that I heard meditation is all about. That well-being that they keep mentioning, yeah? When I get rid of that, I'll get this. And then there's the... I want this, but to get this, I need to get rid of that. So there's this push-pull. So perhaps we've seen that. And when we reflect on those experiences, we can see that is dukkha. And when there's that dukkha, there is also the push-pull. There's also the demand. Then there's also um, a sense of uh, contraction. So all of these arise together. They co-arise. They're codependent. And this is interesting for us. Because if we say, when there's dukkha, then there's contraction and there's push-pull. And there's demand for experience to be a certain way or not to be a certain way. When when there's dukkha, there's these. What happens if there's less of these? What happens to the dukkha? So if we can ease contraction, if we can ease push-pull and experience, if we can ease demand... Does the dukkha go down? And hopefully, you can see that relationship. If not, then look for it, because you will see it if you look for it. When there's less contraction, when there's less push-pull, when there's less demand, there's also less dukkha. There's more ease. There's more well-being. And this is really important to see and to understand uh, over and over again in our experience, to see and understand. Because it's a gateway to well-being. It's a gateway to understanding. It's a gateway to freedom. Decreasing that contraction, that demand, that push-pull on experience. How's that landing? Okay, I need to convince you a little bit more. Do my best. So one interesting thing to see with that is if dukkha arises with these other conditions, with contraction, push-pull, demand, um, what happens when metta is present? Or any of metta's Uh, what I'm calling meta-sisters, when there's compassion, when there's joy, when there's equanimity. We might start to notice that when uh, there is metta, there is less dukkha. And what else is there less of? 
There's less constra- contraction, there's less push-pull, there's less demand. And this can be uh, kind of a really interesting thread uh, to follow. So we can see, ah, when, the, when metta is there, there might still be, yeah, or compassion, might be a sense of sadness or pain in the being. When compassion is there, or metta is there with that, the degree of dukkha goes down. Does that make sense to people? You can hold it in that space of compassion or of metta. And the sense of difficulty is less. It doesn't mean that it's all bliss. <laughs> it can also even be, but there's less sense of friction and contraction with experience. So we can even say metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, uh, the wholesome states, the antidotes even to dukkha we can say because they release that sense of contractedness that demand that for me uh, and that push pull on experience and as they do that they open up the possibilities for us to move uh, away from this momentum of reactivity that the push pull brings Mm -hmm. react 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 demand 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 of our lives to a sense of agency and a sense of responsiveness, possibilities of responding to our experience. And I want to go back with this to one of the examples that Jake gave this morning from Tara Brack, and I want to look at it from this lens that I've just described. So we've already heard it, but I'll repeat it, a short version. And will kind of unpack it from this particular lens. So this was an example uh, where Tara Brack was sharing that sense of feeling anxiety. There's anxiety around needing to prepare something and then feeling the anxiety getting more and more with that a sense of tunnel vision, right? She's really focused on trying to find this file on her computer to prepare this talk. Her mother comes in, wanting some contact, and she's not even able to really engage. You can say, might not even fully take on that the mother is there, that there's a human being there wanting contact, wanting to engage, uh, carries on doing what she's doing. And as her mother's leaving the room, (laughs) giving up, I spend a lot of time with my mother also. I, I can resonate with that experience. Um, then that sense of in that moment there's a waking up to what's going on. And we might say it's a moment of compassion there, right? Like she notices that, oh, my mother's leaving and not, uh, I haven't actually connected with her. And there's a moment of compassion. And that instigates the sense of, oh, something's going on here, I need to pay attention. And then she sits down and explores her experience. Do you remember this? Yeah. And so in that pausing, yeah. pausing the momentum of the habit, pausing the momentum of the, momentum of the friction, of the push-pull on experience, I need to get this, I need to find this, I need to prepare this, yeah, and all the spiraling that goes on there. Uh, she, s- she pauses, she stops, she sits down, and she looks at her experience. Yeah, she looks at her experience and to follow the paradigm of, of kind of that rain system, she 
recognizes what's going on, there's anxiety, she allows it, she investigates what does it feel like in the body. When we look at it from the paradigm I described earlier, we can see what is actually happening there. Yeah, she's, she's slowing down a process of escalation and reactivity. Yeah, she's slowing down uh, this process of contracting around the urgency that the anxiety is fueling. Yeah, I need to do this. Yeah, and there's contraction with that. There's that narrow tunnel vision with that. She's pausing that disconnection from everything else that's going on around her, yeah, that that tunnel vision brings. And as she's doing that, what's happening is less contraction, more expansiveness in space, right? Space opens up. She's able to meet her experience. She's able to see more of what's going on. Well, I feel guilty. Oh, I love my mother. <laughs> And she's just walked away a little bit despondent because I wasn't listening to her. Yeah, opening up the space. She also opens, the space also opens up to her deeper aspirations. Yeah, I want to be there for those that I love. Yeah, opens up to her priorities. I want to be present. Yeah, thinking that I'm prepared for this talk is not the most important thing. And she opens to the patterns that are at play, the conditioning that's at play. And so as she continues to recognize, to allow, to investigate, there's less push and pull on, on experience. Yeah, can, can we kind of see that in, reson in kind of relation to this story? There's less push and pull. There's less, oh, it needs to be like this. And there's less demand. I have to give a perfect talk or I have to feel I'm you know, prepared perfectly less demand, and there's more spaciousness in the system. And with the more spaciousness, more possibilities of response. More possibilities to be in alignment with her aspirations and her priorities. Uh, the quite uh, available uh, capacity to let go of the sense of blame and of guilt in that alignment with what matters. And the opening to compassion, self-compassion to meet her own experience, her own needs, uh, compassion for others. So all the practices we're doing here do this. Yeah? All the practices we're doing here, they do this. They kind of unclench that fist of demand, of contraction. Yeah? They lessen the demand. They lessen the push-pull on experience. Uh, they open up possibilities for us, all of them. You know, we've done the allowing and welcoming, the meta practice, the rain this morning. Um, the opening the space of awareness through the body, all of these lessen the contractedness, lessen the push-pull, lessen the demand. And we can say, another way of saying that, they go against the stream of the conditioned reactivity uh, that we uh, spend most of our lives living through. Uh, such a strong conditioning of reactivity. So as I said earlier, and I'll come back to this, um, the, the Brahma Viharas, the Divine Abidings, Metta, and her family of sisters, they all do this uh, to quite a profound uh, degree. 
And I want to speak a little bit about the relationship about, uh, between uh, those four sisters. Mm-hmm. Just to speak a little bit about the relationship with them because there's something uh, between them, because there's something about their, um, you know, I don't call them a family or, or sisters, uh, you know, lightly. There's something about the way they come together, uh, which, is, which is quite meaningful uh, for us. So one way that we can conceive the relationship between um, these four is uh, through the lens of metta, the way we've been doing here. And we can say that when metta meets that which is difficult, painful, challenging, it kind of morphs into compassion or it takes the form of compassion. Sometimes the, this image is used uh, in the tradition. You know, it's just like you know, when, we, when we care about someone and we see them stubbing their toe, we go, ouch. There's <laughs> that sense of resonance. You know, when we hurt part of our body and that the hand reaches out to comfort. Yeah? So there's that sense of care. And when that sense of care is in the presence of something painful, it becomes compassion, and I'll be speaking uh, more about compassion this evening. When metta meets that which is going well, that which is beautiful, that which is uh, nourishing, uh, that which is gladdening, it transforms or morphs into medita, into um, appreciative uh, or empathetic or unselfish joy, uh, very nourishing. Uh, quality of joy. And as metta becomes more and more refined, more and more subtle, more and more expansive, um, it kind of goes from a very um, kind of a particular emotional response, yeah, a sense of friendliness towards a particular becomes a sense of friendliness towards more and more aspects of our experience. And um, it also moves from a sense of friendship to a sense of non-ill will yeah, or non-enmity. So it becomes more and more refined. And as it moves along that spectrum, and this one, this is complicated, so if you don't get it, don't worry about it. As it moves along that spectrum towards non-enmity, non-ill will, non-demand, non-preference, um, it becomes a form of equanimity, of this balance, of this poise, um, of this unshakable tenderness. So it can be interesting just to think about this relationship in this way, that metta is actually interwoven with each of the other sisters and um, they all are mutually supportive of each other. Can also, am I going too fast? Okay. I, I often ask this, if you listen to recordings of mine, I think probably every third talk I ask, because I, I get quite excited in my head and then I find it difficult to assess <laughs> how fast I'm going. Yeah. Okay. So, with all the Brahma Viharas, and particularly with compassion, um, 
really helpful to remember they are not detached states. They're not something about, you know, and it can feel like that when we practice them in this setting, you know, that it's about a practice that's detached from life, detached from others, detached from experience. Um, it's very much about witnessing. Um, but they are actually uh, engaged states of heart and mind. And particularly with compassion, it's an active movement. Yeah? It's a movement towards alleviating suffering. Yeah, it's got a very clear agenda. A movement towards alleviation, alleviating um, suffering. And the karuna, the word that's trans- translated as compassion in the context of the Brahma Viharas is, um, comes from the root ka, which is action. Yeah? So it's, it's an action. It's not just uh, an intention. It's kind of an active intention, we can say. Intention to alleviate suffering. And there's this uh, beautiful quote from the Dalai Lama uh, where he says, according to, um, to Dharma teachings, compassion is an aspiration, a state of mind, of wanting others and oneself to be free, of, free from suffering, free from dukkha. It's not passive it's not empathy alone, but rather an empathetic response that actively strives to free others and oneself from dukkha. Genuine compassion must have both wisdom and metta. That is to say, one must understand the nature of the suffering, the nature of dukkha from which we wish to free others. Yeah, this is the wisdom component. And one must experience deep intimacy and empathy with other sentient beings. This is metta. Shall I say it again? It's really beautiful. According to Buddhism or to Dharma teachings, compassion is an aspiration, a state of mind, wanting others and oneself to be free from suffering, free from dukkha. It's not passive. It's not empathy alone but rather an empathetic response that actively strives to free others and oneself from dukkha. Genuine compassion must have both wisdom and metta. That is to say, one must understand the nature of the suffering from which we wish to free others or ourselves. And this is wisdom. And one must experience deep intimacy and empathy with other sentient beings, and this is metta. So he's really opening up the field here uh, for uh, both uh, a deeper understanding of compassion, but also an understanding of the place that wisdom plays in this. And he's opening up this uh, deep understanding that is there in the teachings. uh, And today, modern psychology is making the same definitions. Um, Seeing the distinction between empathy and compassion. That empathy is part of compassion, and it's really important component and aspect. But it's not the whole thing. It's not just the empathy in the sense of the intimacy and the care and the capacity to feel with comes together with a wisdom 
that directs us how to respond uh, to uh, the suffering that we meet. So compassion made up both of this meta-empathy aspect and uh, of wisdom, that capacity to understand that dukkha, that suffering is conditioned and constructed, to understand how it is conditioned and constructed, and to have the capacity to discern the appropriate response. So a lot there. And I often you know, give an example here of an unwise compassion. Yeah, and a great example of that if you've been around a young child who's had some cake and wants more, yeah, or a not young child. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in that case, you know, wanting more sweets and having a tantrum, yeah, because I want more sweets. Yeah. And if we were just going with the empathy, or the, what's called sometimes the idiot compassion, we would just give that child what they want. Yeah. But we know, we have discernment to know, more sweets are not going to lead <laughs> to their well-being and happiness, or to the well-being and happiness of the others around. Because right? more sweets means more sugar, more kind of fast energy. Yeah. Not actually something... Uh, good or wholesome, and not something that can satisfy yeah. over time. So that wisdom that discerns, yeah. okay, what's, what's the duke I am? What's needed? Yeah. I have many memories of my nieces and nephews and being with them in these situations, and children are amazing. You know, sometimes you can say to them, ah, just, can you just take a deep breath when they're really like, ah, you know. And, and they do it. <laughs> and it's really, I mean, I was always really blown away, you know, by that. And they take a deep breath and then, okay, breathe again, you know, so that you can tell me what you really need. And often, you know, they have the wisdom when, when they're supported to breathe and to pause, yeah? They can get in touch with the wisdom of, oh, I, I need a hug or I need, you know, in my case, you know, they might say, I want my mother, not you. <laughs> yeah, but they can kind of get in touch with what would actually be you know, a much more nourishing thing than what they seemed to be having the tantrum around. So with wisdom, we can kind of see that. And wisdom is also just the intention to discern. It's not always easy, yeah? Our lives are complex, not always simple to know what's the right response, what's the wise response, what's the kind of wise compassion here. But we can know enough to pause and to ask the question and then to also have self-compassion towards ourselves that we're doing the best we can and we're not always going to get it right. Yeah? We're not always going to get it right. So that sense of this richness of the ground of compassion and the place that wisdom uh, plays. Another uh, really important aspect <coughs> of wisdom here is seeing that... <coughs> it's a good example right there. Voice going. Seeing that we are part of the network 
uh, of life that we wish to support. So often when we think of compassion, it's very much outward facing, and that's a beautiful thing. And that quote from the Dalai Lama, I actually added in oneself. He's just talking about others. Yeah. He just says the, 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 the wish to alleviate the suffering of others, which is the very conventional way that we look at compassion. But wisdom comes in and reminds us that we are part of that network and we have to look after ourselves as well. So the place of self-compassion, self-meta, as part uh, of the work of uh, alleviating suffering. Yeah. We can't actually separate those two. It has to go in here and out there, uh, both. Wisdom also reminds us that um, compassion has many forms, has many forms of expression. Um, and that in its essence, and this is yeah, also very counter to some of the image that we may have, in its essence, compassion is empowering. It's nourishing more than it's depleting. Uh, and this is an arena of practice for us because it goes very much against the grain of how we're used to see it and how we're used to um, habitually kind of imagine or place ourselves in the face of, of suffering. And so remembering all the Brahma Viharas, all the, uh, these divine uh, abodes, they're all freeing ways of relating. They all nourish well-being. And sometimes with, when it comes to opening to suffering, that can feel counterintuitive. Uh, we think about what our uh, habit is in the face of pain. It's to contract yeah, and to armor ourselves, to protect ourselves close off to some degree um, and we know that right we know that that um, I think Jake mentioned it uh, either last night or or this morning you know that sense of when we say to someone oh you know I'm having a hard time and they kind of come up with a solution oh you should do this yeah. and part of that is that shutting off and that's what we react to that's why we don't feel heard. Because sometimes in that ref reflex to just offer a fix, yeah, there's something that shuts down and contracts. And this is our habit in the face of uh, pain, of suffering, of difficulty ourselves or, or, the, or the pain of others. Um, and compassion is encouraging us to do something else. It's encouraging us to open, yeah. to ground, to open and to meet with care. That's part of why it's empowering. <laughs> That's why it's part of why it's actually a strength. It goes against the grain of our habits and it offers us something else. And when we try it, we see that. Yeah. If we can do it from a place that's not pushing, that's including the self-compassion and the internal listening, that's grounding, that's grounding and opening and meeting with care. Then we actually feel open as opposed to contracted. 
responsive as opposed to limited and reactive. And there's a deep sense of well-being there. So unsurprisingly, this talk is rich with Dalai Lama quotes. So here's another one. Some of you know, I'm, I'm a big fan, big, big fan of HH, as we like to call him. You know he's called His Holiness? HH for short. So the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Yeah. So much shorter than the previous quote, <laughs> but not less profound. Yeah. And I'm going to say it again. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. And I think it's really interesting what he's pointing to. This again, goes against our uh, intuitive understanding, our conditioned understanding. But he's actually saying to us, compassion feels good. Compassion is good. Yeah. It kind of brings um, a deep well-being and a deep happiness. A deep well-being and a deep happiness and an increase in a sense of empowerment and agency. And this movement from being closed and contracted and shut off as a way of protecting ourselves. Yeah. And there'll be a caveat in a moment. Yeah. That movement from there to a sense of openness and intimacy and the willingness to touch and be touched. Yeah. Touch and be touched by life. Yeah, remember Guan Yin behind us. She who hears the cries of the world and willing us to be touched to hear, to listen. Yeah. That willingness is deeply healing, deeply resourcing. The caveat, and then I'll give an example of this, is you know, sometimes I say this and, and people come back to me and say, but there's, there's places where boundaries are helpful. Yeah. And I will say, yes, absolutely. And boundaries can be a form of compassion. Yeah. So just to say that. But we can also set boundaries with an open heart. Here's the interesting thing. Yeah. Boundaries don't need to come with a sense of armor. We can set boundaries with non-enmity, with non-ill will. We can say, no, this is not okay. Yeah. And we can set a boundary uh, out of compassion, both if it's a personal boundary, you know, self-compassion towards ourselves, but also an act of compassion towards the other. Because when we set boundaries, we often support another not to act harmfully. And that is also compassion. Yeah. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. So a deep sense of, of well-being that comes in and that includes, you know, compassion, many ways for it to express itself, many ways. And I want to give uh, an example. Um, so one of the things that I, uh, that I and my partner, some other friends do is uh, we, we work very much, well, we work quite regularly in Palestine. Um, 
And one of the things that we do is we bring Israeli practitioners to Palestine to uh, meet the reality of Palestinians firsthand. And we do that both as a practice and also we do an active practice of doing some form of positive work, uh, usually helping farmers. And often something that I will hear, and this is a phrasing that someone used a couple of years ago, and she said, um, it's an Israeli practitioner, and she said, you know, being here and seeing for myself the situation and being this close to the suffering, yeah, I feel the most sane that I felt in a long time. Because, of course, as an Israeli, there's a sense of that happening. <laughs> yeah. But it's so difficult yeah, to come in contact with because, just like with Tara Brack, different situation. Yeah. The guilt, the blame, the shame, yeah. the helplessness. Yeah. All of that comes in. So it's really difficult to come into contact. But when you do... Yeah, when you take that step, and we always say, you know, crossing the invisible border yeah, between Israel and Palestine, when you take that step, and again and again, that sense of this being here in contact, in seeing, in not the hiding away, not the turning away, yeah, feels sane. Saying. So there's something about that uh, that is what the Dalai Lama is pointing to. And again, it can take many forms. Compassion can take many forms. So I'm going to tell another story about Palestine because it's popped into my head now. <laughs> And it's a, a kind of interesting way that when we start opening to compassion and meta and friendship on a deep level, then um, it kind of ripples more and more around us and we see it more and we experience it more. And uh, often uh, we say on our, on our retreats that this idea that somebody is coming to help somebody else, <laughs> Like the Israelis are coming to help the Palestinians. It's really not what's going on. Yeah. Those ideas get completely turned on their heads. Yeah. Because when we open to compassion, we realize yeah, what we share. We realize our mutuality. We realize the richness of humans. And so this is a... I haven't really got time. Huh. Let's check on your energies before we go into another story because I still have to talk about Medita. Okay, who's feeling like their energy is getting to its limit? That wasn't a very good way of asking it, was it? <laughs> Made you laugh. Maybe, maybe that gives a bit more energy. Can you do another 10 minutes? Okay. Huh? You want the story, yeah. So this is, um, this is, yeah, 
I might cry. <laughs> so a few years ago, um, the village that we work in in Palestine uh, were holding weekly protests uh, because uh, most of their agricultural lands had gotten blocked by a safety barrier that was built along the road uh, that is uh, servicing uh, the settlements. And so they built the safety barriers and didn't take into account that along this road were entranceways to agricultural tracks. So just, you know, a safety barrier of car for cars, but just blocking all these four agricultural roads. And so the, f the people from the village were protesting every week. Uh, their form of protest was to hold the Friday midday prayer, the most important prayer of the week, down by the road. So not a violent or problematic way of protesting at all. They were just doing that. And Israeli friends uh, were coming to join them. After a few weeks of this, uh, the army started to block the Israelis for coming, from coming to the, uh, to the protests. So they would close off the entrances to the village so the, the Israelis couldn't come in. Uh, don't ask me why. <laughs> Doesn't always make sense. Uh, so they would find other ways. To, to come in and they would still be there. And one Friday at the protest, um, one of uh, the Israeli friends was there, or a few of them were, and the soldiers were, th were there. And the soldiers realized that he was there and the army had declared it a closed zone to Israelis, so he was breaking the law. And they wanted to arrest him. And one of our Palestinian friends so here we have the sense of the boundaries dissolving, yeah, the sense of compassion, the sense of care coming in yeah, doing something which is seemingly against the law that you don't believe in or condone uh, in order to stand with your friends, stand for justice. Yeah. Here's this action. And then, yeah, and just to say, if my friend had been arrested, if an Israeli would be arrested, a few hours, maybe a night in jail, they'd be released because they haven't actually done anything illegal and they won't get prosecuted. But in this confrontation between the army officer and the Israeli, um, our Palestinian friends stepped in and one of them, who's a man in his late 50s with a heart condition, grabbed his Israeli brother, as he calls him, and pulled him and put him behind his back. And he called to his other friends, get him out, get him out. And he himself stood in front of the soldier and said, this is my friend. Yeah. Do not harm him. And in that situation, you know, somehow the energy was diffused. Nobody got arrested. But we can just see the power, yeah, the power of compassion, the power of metta. Yeah, because the, this kind of practice that we do here yeah, supports us also in the way we are in the world. And our capacity to discern and to act with compassion in different situations and for different people that will be different ways, yeah? different scenarios that are asking for our uh, involvement. But we see that power of compassion, yeah? that sense of 
kind of concern for oneself. Gone in the concern for the other, in the sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, as they like to say. So there's something about these Brahma Viharas that's very powerful. I used to spend a lot of time, very fortunate to spend a lot of time in India. And we always remember there's this advert there for an Ayurvedic thing called Chow and Fash. <laughs> Made, I can tell you, the company called the Bull. And the advertisement is strengthens you from deep within. And I always, I've, I've kind of stolen the line for compassion and metta and medita in equanimity. They strengthen us from deep within, yeah, through their gentle power with their gentle power. So this whole family, this whole family. And I want to say a little bit, I've spoken about compassion, but I want to say a little bit about, about joy. Yeah? And I often feel it's not a coincidence that compassion and joy are together yeah, at the center of this family of Brahma Viharas. We've got metta on one end, we've got equanimity, upeka on the other and we have the joy and the compassion in the middle. Yeah. It's not a coincidence. Uh, these two are very, very closely related uh, qualities. And Medita, this quality of appreciative or unselfish joy. Yeah. And I like this translation, the unselfish joy, uh, because the unselfish points to what happens to us when we feel joy, that openness, that expansiveness, that sense of connection more than just about me. And when we reflect, when we really feel joy, when we really feel joy, how strong is the sense of me and mine in there? This is a really, really interesting thing to reflect on. Really feel joy. Yeah. really feel happy. And so there's a real sense there of that. We go back to the beginning, the easing of the contraction and the demand, both with compassion and with joy. Yeah? That willingness to open to the painful, to the imperfect, to the difficult, to the challenging in life. We loosen the contraction. We loosen the demand on life. And that willingness to open to joy wherever it appears. Yeah? To see beauty. Yeah? To delight in what's going well. Wherever it's appearing. Yeah? Also ease the, eases the contraction and the demand. And the unselfish joy, the mudita, very closely related to qualities like gratitude and appreciation. And sometimes they can be our access point. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. And that sense, that joy, yeah, that we can shift our interest, we can shift our focus from what we think will bring us joy to the joy itself. Yeah, to the joy itself. And therefore... If you're having a great time doing standing or walking practice out on the lawn and I'm watching you, (laughs) I can really enjoy it and try it tomorrow if you haven't tried it. 
look, you know, even if you're not, you know, for whatever reason you can't or don't want to go outside and you look at others practicing. And we can feel that sense of the joy that resonates at another person's practice, yeah, or here in the hall. And we know this when we think of things like, um, you know, watching a, a puppy running around really, really happy. Yeah. At home, my study overlooks a dog park. I, I have so much fun watching the dogs. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not the one running around the park, thankfully, one might say. Yeah. But I get all the joy yeah, by just watching them. So we have that, yeah? We have that capacity to feel joy yeah, without it needing to be directly related to me getting something. Does that make sense? And this is this quality of unselfish joy. Incredibly beautiful. And again, we know it. We know that resonance. We hear children laughing. Yeah? They walk by a school at playtime. Sometimes you hear the crying, compassion, but you hear the joy <laughs> of the laughter. Yeah? And we, if, you, if you pay attention, there's this resonance of like, ah, I see it now in the hall, people are smiling. Yeah? Just at the memory, just at the thought. They have that sense of resonance. So this shifting of the emphasis from, you know, where is the joy? What is it about? To, ah, there's joy. <laughs> and I can feel it. I can connect to it. Yeah. And the lessening of the demand, the lessening of the contraction, the lessening of dukkha as we do that. So it can be really helpful to see, and I'll, I'll speak more about Medita tomorrow, but just to see this relationship between compassion and joy, because the more the heart is trained to open with compassion, yeah, the more capacity we have to open to joy. And the other way around. The more the heart is trained to open to what is going well, to appreciate, to be grateful. Yeah. The more capacity we have to open to the difficult and the painful. It's the same heart-mind. Yeah. It's, you know, we forget. It's as if we have, oh, this is the joy organ and this is the, <laughs> the compassion organ. No, it's the same thing. And when it opens its range, it opens to both. Uh, the sensitivity grows to both. So let's stay with that for tonight and uh, more, more about Medita tomorrow and also more opportunity to practice uh, with it and just have a moment of uh, silence together to bring this to a close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.